Holy heck, folks. It's been a long time. So long, in fact, a few of you have sent me messages wondering if I was dead or if I'd given up. I apologize profusely. The last eight months have been a continuous series of plagues upon my house that have left me wondering just which deity it is that I've managed to piss off somehow. Perhaps it's a mummy's curse. Either way, I am always writing and researching when I can. And the good news is, I have hours of material written and recorded, and I have done an absurd amount of research to get there. The bad news is, it's spread out over three episodes, and there's still a good bit of work to do to sew them all up. As so often happens with this podcast, today's episode was supposed to be a few paragraphs of summary that somehow turned into an hour and a half. And I just had to cut it off and put it out there so that I could release something. What's worse, if you've listened to the whole series so far, you may notice this is ground we've already trodden a bit in episodes 1.3 and 2.2. And I feel really self-conscious about this, so let me explain. For the last year and a half or so of this podcast, we've been stuck in a bit of a rut in our timeline, right about May 1625-ish. The wheels have been turning, but we've been going deeper, not forward. And there are several reasons for this. 1625 just seemed like a good breakoff point. King James dies, King Charles is crowned. Sir George Calvert sells his office, converts to Catholicism, becomes a baron, and heads off to Ireland. So it just felt like a natural rest stop to pivot to other important angles of the same time period. What's going on politically? What's going on religiously? What's going on with colonization? Well, now i got to do an entire history of Ireland. But the whole time, I'm basically leaving all these frayed, loose ends blowing in the breeze. And come to find out, I can't stitch them back together and make any sense. The period right around 1625 is so insanely dense with events and matters we need to discuss, and there are so many moving parts, that I couldn't even plot it out on graph paper. Seriously, I tried a couple times. And if you get the order of events even slightly off, it jacks the narrative up. As I found out around episode 3 when I had to do a bunch of frantic rewrites the day I was going to post the episode, because I discovered I was a month off with one date. And there's a few little things out there I didn't catch in time. And today, I want to rectify that. Not just for historical accuracy's sake, but because some of the stuff I overlooked or bungled is very important for understanding what happens going forward. So what we're going to start out doing today is to have a bit of a review and get everything back in as straight a narrative line as possible. Some of it will be a quick overview. Some of it, like the Parliament of 1624, will be me zooming in and doing it right this time. Because the way I previously described the Parliament of 1624 back in episode 1.3... Oh man, I was worse than right. I was wrong. (laughs) I just breezed over it from the stratospheric level with no idea of how important it was. Until I realized I couldn't make any contextual sense of the events of the next three years without it. The devil, it turns out, is in the details. So today's episode is about tying up a bunch of the loose ends and giving a bit of a tune-up to the storyline. By reloading and streamlining this slice of the timeline, we're going to finally squeal wheels out of this 1625 rut and into the tumultuous early years of Charles I's reign. Now on to the episode. Como esta, mi amigos? You are listening to A History of Maryland. This is Episode 6, Blessed Revolution and the Mansfeld Expedition. We left off in early 1627, with Sir George Calvert being pulled, tractor beam-like, from his retirement in Ireland, back towards the nest of vipers that was the royal court in England. 
At this point, the Duke of Buckingham is anxious to reach a peace with Spain. Not only had the Anglo-Spanish War of 1625 to 1630 been an unmitigated disaster so far, England was now finding herself on the brink of a simultaneous separate war with her nominal ally in this whole affair, France. In just two years, Charles and Buckingham's foreign policy pivot away from a Spanish match towards a French one had collapsed on itself. The pendulum swung back, and suddenly Calvert's years of experience with Spanish diplomacy was seen as an asset, and he received a summons from Buckingham to be part of the process of mending fences with the Spaniards. Seeing as the latest conflict with Spain is referred to as the Anglo-Spanish War of 1625 to 1630, and not the Anglo-Spanish War of 1625 to 1627, you can guess how well these peace negotiations are going to go. But his brief reintroduction into court life won't be a fruitless endeavor for Calvert, and will directly affect the fate of his planned expedition to Avalon in a couple of ways. But first, we'll need to rewind a few years and see how we got here. Because while we spent the last two episodes bullying about the backwaters and bogs of Ireland, we missed a whole heap of trouble going on over in England. Important trouble. Over the next couple of podcasts, we'll take one more pass over the years between 1625 and the summer of 1627. This time from the angle of the grand political stage. We'll see how Prince Charles and the Duke of Buckingham, if ever so briefly, were able to harness popularity with both the English people and the Parliament to snatch the helm of England's foreign policy away from an increasingly besotted and indecisive King James. And then we'll see how they immediately proceed to steer the ship of state onto the rocks, thus dashing any real hope of reconciliation between King and Parliament throughout the rest of Charles' reign. And it's this ever-deepening constitutional crisis in England between the rights and powers of the king and the rights and powers of the parliament that will have major ramifications down the road for our little old province of Maryland. The foundation of the Maryland colony, the granting of its charter, and its first crucial years of settlement will occur during the era of King Charles's personal rule, where the king, fed up with parliament, rules without them for 11 years. Now, to most traditional English and American colonial historical views, this was tyranny. The king ruling and taxing arbitrarily without calling a parliament was wholly a bad thing. But in the story of Maryland, the shades are a little more gray. Because arguably, a Catholic colony with a thoroughly royalist charter could only have been created and survived its infancy during a reign like Charles I's. I think if it were up to most parliamentarian Protestant patriots in England, Maryland would have been legally squashed before it got out of the planning stages. And for many of the same reasons, as the conflicts between the king and the parliament devolve into civil war, Maryland will be directly affected, arguably more than any other English colony at the time. This is why we have to try and slow down, zoom in, and do this period right. To get as much of the context as possible so that we can be fair in our interpretations, and so we can understand where everyone's heads were at at the time. Because the perspective on this era will be very different for Maryland than it was for, say, Puritan New England, where much of the popular foundation history of America is based. In a future supplementary episode, we're going to delve more deeply into the constitutional angles of Charles I's reign. We'll get into the political philosophy and the tug-of-war between parliamentary privilege and the king's prerogative. It's important for our story because English constitutionalism begets American constitutionalism. These themes and ideas will continue to affect our narrative centuries down the line. 
The American Revolution, 150 years later, is one of the many evolutionary outcomes of this chain of events. We'll discuss concepts like absolutism, as well as the evolutionary history of Parliament as a check on royal authority. We'll also discuss the historiography of this era, the history of the history, as it were, as it was viewed down through the centuries, and try to get a handle on the many, many schools of thought relating to it. I will even clumsily wade into the fray myself and try to polish the awful reputation of the Stuart dynasty, if only just a little. Mostly by trying to tarnish the good reputations of the Parliament and the Tudor dynasty, so the Stuarts don't look quite so bad. That conversation is coming. But in today's podcast, we'll be concerning ourselves with the grand sweep of international politics. We're going to set up the geopolitical scene to the point of Charles I's ascension to the throne. Because right from the outset, Charles's political fate will be inexorably tied to an expanding series of European dynastic and religious conflicts that will come to be known as the Thirty Years' War. So let's take the magic rocket ship into orbit above Europe circa 1620 to 1624 and see what's doing. by 17th century standards, the frenetic complexity of international diplomacy during these years was mind-boggling. So for your sake, and more especially for mine, let's all take a quick tour of what was going on in Europe in the early 1620s, as well as Charles and Buckingham's ill-conceived obsession with being part of it all. In the early 1620s, Europe is still in an age dominated by royal dynasties. Centralized, secular nation-states as we understand them are still a few centuries in the future. It's evolving towards that direction, but we're not there yet. Instead, powerful families, whose power is legitimized by their noble blood, accumulate land and titles. And of course, the most land-accumulating, dynastastical family of them all were the Habsburgs. They started out as just another cluster of local nobles centered around parts of today's Switzerland and Germany way back in the 11th century, but who now ran a sizable chunk of the world at our point in the narrative. This was achieved not only through money and force of arms, but through strategic marriage alliances. And they would manage to keep these lands in the family, as it were, by frequently marrying a little too close to their own gene pool. And this would lead not only to the most notorious underbite in history, but a rack of physical and mental disabilities that will help kill off the male line in a few centuries. But in the early 1620s, a considerable chunk of Europe is under the dynastic sway of both the Spanish and the Austrian branches of the Habsburgs. Spain not only controls an international empire that stretches from Florida to Peru to the Philippines, they'd recently merged dynastically with one of their greatest rivals, the Portuguese. This brought Portugal's extensive colonial possessions, from Africa to the Far East, India to Brazil, all under the Habsburg umbrella. There's the Spanish Netherlands, Brabant and Flanders, parts of what we call Belgium today. Also, portions of Italy and many Mediterranean islands that were either Habsburg possessions outright or close allies. The Austrian Habsburgs are in direct control of many lands in what would today be Austria, Germany, Hungary. And they had at least nominal sway over most of Central Europe due to their family's virtual monopoly over the position of Holy Roman Emperor. 
While I might lazily refer to the Holy Roman Empire as Germany or the Germanese, the empire at this time really encapsulates a wide swathe of Central Europe, from the Baltic Sea in the north down to the Mediterranean the Adriatic Seas in the south. The core territory might be today's Germany, but at various points in history it also spread across what would become Eastern France, Austria, Switzerland, Northern Italy, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, even occasionally bits of Poland and Hungary, and probably a few others I'm forgetting about. The Holy Roman Empire has no firm central political authority or binding ethnic national identity. Don't think of it as an actual empire or even a state. It's a very loose and mushy confederation, made up of hundreds of various independent political entities of every size, shape, and ethnicity. There are free cities, prince bishoprics, counties, duchies, and kingdoms, all tenuously wrapped up together in a thin tissue of barely enforceable laws, mutually recognized rights and liberties, and a bewildering array of feudal connections and marriage alliances. The Holy Roman Emperor was elected, for life, by the seven elector counts who ruled over some of the most important regions. And when we get right down to brass tacks, the Emperor only held as much real power as he himself could muster and enforce. Throughout most of its 900 year or so history, Portions of the empire were in open conflict with themselves, as nobles and bishops, great and small, jockeyed endlessly for political power. Externally, the empire's main historical rivals, apart from the Ottoman Turks, were usually France and or some alliance the Pope had put together that checked the power of the emperor. It's all complex and confusing enough to make Ireland seem simple and straightforward, and it all gets worse once the Reformation hits in the early 1500s. Suddenly, every regional, dynastic, and political dispute in Central Europe has the added accelerant of religious sectarianism poured all over it. Protestants and Catholics start slugging away at each other, creating power blocks within the empire. There's a Protestant Union forming, mostly in the north and the west of what would today be Germany, and a Catholic League generally forming in the south and the east. Mass carnage within the Holy Roman Empire is temporarily averted by the shaky peace of Augsburg in 1555. And the tentative agreement is basically this. Princes within the empire can choose the religion of their own domain. Note that this isn't religious tolerance. It's your lord gets to decide your religion. And there's still all sorts of religious oppression and inequity going on within the various political regions of the empire. With thousands of Catholics and Protestants fleeing their homes to try to make it over to the nearest principality where they could legally worship. It's an ad hoc solution at best, and failure is baked into the cake. Most of the Catholic lords, particularly the Habsburgs, those defenders of the faith, had no intention of letting this state of affairs permanently stand. The constant political flux and feudal nature of the empire meant that future conflicts were inevitable. Your lord might be Protestant one day, and his lord Catholic the next. And jurisdictional disputes over which religion applied where continued. To top it off, the only Protestantism which the Peace of Augsburg quote-unquote tolerated was Lutheranism. And between 1555 and our point in the narrative, it's the more radical Reformed Protestant movements like Calvinism which had all the momentum, and they weren't recognized. Reformed Protestantism was very popular in the Swiss cantons, in certain cities in West Germany, in the United Provinces, what we call the Netherlands, there were the Huguenots in France, the Presbyterians in Scotland, and the Reform Movement will be a big influence on those we have been calling the Puritans in England. So the Peace of Augsburg really solved nothing in the Holy Roman Empire and really made nobody happy. 
Fast forward to 1618. Protestants of Bohemia, roughly today's Czech Republic, revolt against their Catholic Habsburg overlords. And in 1619, they offer the crown of Bohemia to King James's son-in-law, Frederick V, the Elector Count of the Palatinate, or Palatinate. I keep hearing both. I'm just hoping it's one of those aluminum-aluminium things, and I'm just going to say it whatever way it comes to mind. And hopefully you remember this from episode 1.3. When Frederick gets offered the crown of Bohemia, James offers some carefully considered tidbits of advice to his son-in-law. Don't you do it, laddie! But Frederick V accepts the crown of Bohemia anyway. Now, Freddy wasn't a complete idiot. He had a plan. What he thought was going to happen was that the Protestant princes within the empire and anti-Habsburg powers outside of the empire were going to, you know, firm up behind him and scare the Habsburgs out of making any sudden retaliatory actions. That way he could avoid war or at least have a chance at defending himself. But Frederick had read it all wrong. For one thing, he accepted the crown without really consulting the other members of the Protestant Union, some of whom had been offered the same crown themselves and didn't really appreciate Freddy's grab. So the other Protestant princes mostly stayed neutral and aloof. Some Hungarian nobles in Transylvania did rise up against the emperor with the backing of the Ottomans, which in turn brings Poland into the conflict on the side of the Habsburgs. But otherwise, Frederick and the Bohemians were seriously isolated. And basically, the imperial troops will just roll into Bohemia and smash the rebellion in 1620. And over the next couple of years, imperial armies, with the help of the Spanish, would sweep any Protestant resistance before them and seize the Palatinate. And Frederick V and James's daughter Elizabeth are forced into exile in the Netherlands. It's really a comfortable 2-0 victory for the Habsburgs. And the first phase of what will become the Thirty Years' War was almost over before it began. It's only after this that all of the crowned heads of Europe looked at a map and start to realize just what had happened. Strategically speaking, the Habsburgs and their allies are now on a war footing. They have tasted blood. They have replaced a Protestant elector count with a Catholic one, upsetting whatever power balance there had been before. And they now have an uninterrupted supply line from the Mediterranean up through the Rhine, which is bad for the Dutch, the French, the Protestant German princes, and anyone else who opposes a Habsburg hegemony in Europe. Thus, a general European-wide conflagration begins as all these other powers line up as a counterweight to the Habsburgs, and a series of proxy wars and independence movements go back on the boil. At this same time over in the Netherlands, the Eighty Years' War, Protestant Holland's war for independence from Habsburg Spain, sputters back to life after a 12-year-long truce. Everyone knows this truce was about to end and that the Low Countries will once again be embroiled in a massive struggle with all the accompanying death, destruction, horror, and despair that it will bring. It's part of the reason congregations of English separatists living as religious refugees in Holland want to get out and go to North America. We know them now as the Pilgrims and they'll be kind of a big deal in American historical circles. But on a macro level, the Dutch have every incentive to try and broaden the conflict to affect as many Protestant states as possible, so that they're not going this alone. Maurice of Orange, the current stadtholder of the United Provinces, was one of the little devils on Frederick V's shoulder, telling him to accept the Bohemian crown. Go on, take it. Nothing's going to happen. We got your back on this. So Maurice tends to get a lot of the blame for starting the Thirty Years' War, but his motives are understandable. Conversely, many European statesmen were trying to do the opposite, to keep all of these separate political conflicts corked up and distinct from one another. Whether it's King James of England or Matthias of the Empire, 
The desire to minimize the scope of the war to manageable levels will affect their military and diplomatic decisions, often for the worse. Another dangerous development for those concerned with the delicate balance of power in Europe was the period of introspection and internal strife that was occurring in the Ottoman Empire. For generations, Turkish sultans who controlled Greece and the Balkans would occasionally send massive armies into the very heartlands of the Austrian Habsburgs. This not only kept the Habsburgs in check, it was one of the few unifying factors left in Christendom. Places like Hungary were just one of those hot spots where fighting men of every land and Christian denomination can earn a little coin and beat back the advance of the dreaded Mohammedans. There would be some Englishmen of note in our podcast who'd heed the call. There were Catholics who fought for the Habsburgs, such as Thomas Arundel, first Baron Arundel of Warder. Arundel is a family name Marylanders will become quite familiar with, though you might pronounce it something more like Arundel. Yes, Thomas is Anna Rundle's daddy, and would become father-in-law to Cecil Calvert, the second Baron of Baltimore. A famous Protestant English mercenary who fought against the Turks was John Smith of Jamestown fame, who served for a time under the Prince of Transylvania. We'll talk a little bit more about English soldiers of fortune later in the episode, but point being, this common enemy of Christendom would be going into hibernation for a few years. For a period roughly congruent with the Thirty Years' War, the Ottomans would ease up on overt conflicts with the Habsburgs to mostly concentrate on its own issues. And this would give the Habsburgs a free hand when Protestants in the empire started acting up. Probably the greatest potential check to the Habsburgs' power is France. True, the French are Catholic, but they hate the Habsburgs for good old-fashioned territorial and dynastic reasons. France, Spain, and the empire have been going at it long before there was a Reformation. But throughout the 1620s, France would have one hand tied behind its back by internal strife. There is a struggle towards centralization of power between the king and his nobility, and there will also be a series of revolts by the Protestant Huguenots starting in 1620. So the French wouldn't be able to focus their full attention on the Habsburgs for some time, but they're still actively working against them when and where they can. Just about everyone in Europe is picking sides and getting involved at some point. And that's the basic state of international politics around 1620 to 1624. If that summary was complete gobbledygook to you and your eyes are now rolling spastically in the back of your head, it's okay. I just want you to come away with a few key points. One is that Europe is bursting into flames. Well, you know, bigger flames than usual. And two, everything is insanely complex diplomatically and changing on an almost daily basis. Now imagine... Your country's a poor little island kingdom, hundreds of miles from any of this. Do you really want to be a part of it? Which brings us to England. In 1620, everyone's got their eyes on England. Because those plucky little Protestant rulers from the Palatinate who were just smacked up and down the Rhine by the big bad Catholic Habsburg Goliath were King James's daughter Elizabeth and her husband Frederick V. This is family. This is personal. England's honor was at stake. That's how dynastic rule worked. Freddie and Liz were popular with the English people. The idea of Catholic powers steamrolling Protestantism in Europe was deadly real and scary as hell to even the most moderate English Protestants. And for those who felt invested in the glory and prestige of their kingdom, this was an exciting moment. England could be a player on the big stage. And why not? The glorious days of the Sea Dogs were only 40 years before, when Englishmen terrorized Spanish ships and ports worldwide and smashed the Armada. King James had been pursuing peace with Spain ever since he took the throne. 
bowing to them at every turn. Peace with Spain was making England weaker and poorer. Surely now, after James's own kin had been brutally ejected from their rightful lands, now that the Habsburgs were intent on nothing less than exterminating Protestantism in Europe, surely now he would go to war with Spain. As we all know, he doesn't. For the next three years, James will double down on the Spanish match, which will not be popular policy and will serve as easy fuel for an increasingly obstinate parliament. So what is James thinking here? History is magical. It grants us all a superpower, the power of 2020 hindsight. With this great power comes dreadful responsibility. And it's only with deep sense of cautious respect that I pry open the mist of time and take a gander. And from what I see, I can't help thinking James was making the right move all along in regards to foreign policy. Popularity be damned. And that he was ultimately vindicated in all this. But I can only say that because I know what happens a few years down the road when England goes to war with Spain. James didn't have the benefit of hindsight. But I think he was savvy to a few jagged meat hook realities that were tragically lost on his son Charles and on the Duke of Buckingham. First, I think James had at least some inkling about the true state of his military, which was, in a word, shambolic. We'll have a lot more on that later. Secondly, he wasn't naive enough to think that Parliament would actually fund a war against Spain once they'd gotten him to commit to one. He was well aware that there was a block within the Commons who were willing to make any issue part of a broader constitutional power struggle. He'd been going through this his entire reign. So James kept chugging right along with the dream of the Spanish match. Until 1623, that is, when Prince Charles and the Duke of Buckingham burst his bubble with their crazy scheme to travel to Madrid in disguise and to woo the Infanta. And it's a total disaster. They're not going to get what they want. They're treated with courtly courtesies by the Spanish, but there's the looming sense of becoming virtual prisoners. Buckingham and Charles only get out of Spain by signing a bunch of stuff they were just going to tear up once they got home. When they did get home, they find out they're heroes. Even Buckingham, who was roundly hated at that time on all levels of English society. Why? Because apart from James and a certain faction at court and in Parliament, which included Sir George Calvert, everyone hated the Spanish match. The Habsburgs were clearly the enemy, not only to England, but to the Protestant cause itself. The prince and the duke had walked into the very jaws of the beast and exposed the match for the lie that it had been. The Spanish were never going to go through with it. They had just been stringing the king along the entire time to keep him out of the war in Europe. But now, the Spanish were going to get that war. Now, England was going to do what she did so well during the glorious reign of Elizabeth. Kick Spanish butt from here to Lima. I personally doubt the Duke and the Prince were actually trying to expose the lie. I think they genuinely were trying to just expedite a solution and get somewhere. But either way, by the time they limped back to England, they were humiliated. And the way was clear. They had the political winds at their backs. Something that actually looked like popular unity in the Kingdom of England. And yet... James still dithered. He still wanted it both ways. And here is where the prince and the duke leapt into action. They'd twist James's arm until he finally relented and called another parliament in 1624. Then they'd begin to spend all of that political capital and popular goodwill that they'd gained on forming an effective coalition with anti-Spanish hawks in parliament. The parliament of 1624 is sometimes referred to as the happy parliament. This is a very relative term, based on a bunch of crappy parliaments before and after. All of James's previous parliaments had consisted of gridlock between the king's needs for subsidies 
and the commons stonewalling for redress on their grievances. But for a few months in 1624, there was something approaching cooperation between the crown and the parliament. Years of unpopular pro-Spanish policy had turned on its head, and like a clog being plunged, there seems to have been this genuine flush of excitement, nudity, and can-do spirit between the parties that some historians refer to as the Blessed Revolution. And a key factor of this revolution would be, surprisingly enough, the most hated man in England up until then, George Villiers, the Duke of Buckingham. Now, I lampoon Buckingham mercilessly. It's just too easy. But there's got to be something to him. You can't be that unpopular and unlucky and manage to stay in power for over a decade without some measure of cunning and charisma. And he was known in his time as being something of a charmer. Time would show that his faith in his own abilities to persuade were fatally flawed, but in the opening stages of this parliament, he would use it to good effect. I finally got my hands on Benjamin Woolley's The King's Assassin, and it's he who sets the scene. It's February 1624, in the newly built banqueting house of Whitehall Palace, just completed a few years earlier by famous architect Inigo Jones. If you've ever seen any documentary on King Charles or Stuart absolutism or even England's Baroque period, you've seen this place. It has the ceilings painted by Peter Paul Rubens showing King James ascending to heaven. Those paintings wouldn't be commissioned until 1629, so they're not there right now, but it's the same building. It's also the same building Charles Stuart would walk out of one last time in 1649 on his way to getting his neckline trimmed. On this day in 1624, however, Prince Charles is alive and well, and sitting at a table at the front of the banqueting hall. Standing beside him on one side is the Duke of Buckingham. Standing on the other side is Secretary of State Sir George Calvert, who is holding a leather case full of documents. Seated near the prince are the highest lords of the land, and the rest of the long banqueting hall is packed to the gills with MPs from the Lords and the Commons. That's when Buckingham takes the floor and turns on the charm. And I'll paraphrase heavily. Excuse me if I seem a little intimidated. I'm just not used to addressing the cream of the kingdom in one room. We have called you here for a matter of utmost importance. We need your help. Prince and I, well, we weren't treated so well in Spain. And we think maybe this whole Spanish match thing was a big con job by the Spanish. Now, we don't want to go about changing our foreign policy willy-nilly, not without consulting you, the peers and representatives of the realm, and not without your wise and honest counsel on this gravest of issues. But first, you need to know the whole story. The true story. And Buckingham would go on to weave a tale of Spanish threat and duplicity, punctuated by the Duke bidding Calvert to read various selections from his documents to the assembled crowd, such as a letter from the king to Lord Digby, the English ambassador in Spain. And the MPs just ate it up. For years, the attitude of the court had been, shut up and vote us up some money. You're only here to do that. But now, Parliament was being led in behind the curtain of state secrets and being asked for their opinion on the matter before the court would proceed with it. And it worked like a charm. That's how you court popularity. As far as most of Parliament were concerned, the Spanish match was through, and the war with Spain was the only logical next step. But this would have to have been an awkward moment for Calvert, Sir Spanish Party Extraordinaire. I can see him sweating a little more profusely in that cramped, unair-conditioned hall, tugging nervously at his poofy collar, thinking, now might be a good time to retire. And he was right to be fidgety. The backlash against pro-Spanish elements came quickly, 
Lord Digby would be targeted, thrown under the bus for the fiasco that was really Buckingham's fault, and Parliament would once more employ their recently rediscovered weapon of impeachment against the pro-Spanish Lord Treasurer, Lionel Cranfield. This time with Charles and Buckingham's approval and help. Something they may come to regret soon, maybe? But for now, in the early days of 1624, there is mostly consensus, and the promise that the purse strings might finally loosen. You also get the sense that Prince Charles is digging it all. He was never meant to be king, he was the spare. It was only when the true heir, his older brother Henry Frederick, died in 1612, that Charles was thrust into the position of the Prince of Wales. His father was overbearing and overprotective of his remaining son. But now, with the help of his new BFF Buckingham, he was able to step out from James's shadow and start doing some real politicking. There's a nice story about Prince Charles around this time, wandering his way into the House of Commons in 1624. Now that's a big no-no. Royalty are not supposed to come in. Not uninvited, anyway. It's part of the sanctity of the Commons being able to operate as a true separate arm of the government, unintimidated by the Crown. But they welcomed him in, and they let him hang out while they deliberated. It would be a very different story when King Charles entered the House of Commons in January 1642, with a list of MPs who were to be arrested. A desecration of parliamentary privilege that would spark the First English Civil War. For all this talk of the happy parliament and the blessed revolution, there was a sting in the tail. That sting was King James, and he'd ultimately help poison the consensus, and maybe even his own son's chances at a popular reign. James realized exactly what the prince and the duke were up to. They were snatching the wheel of foreign policy out from the king's hands. At first, James was reluctantly dragged away with the anti-Spanish tide, but as the months passed, he grew more and more obstinate and pouty about the whole affair. And an important factor in understanding how this all pans out is the nature of King James's and the Duke of Buckingham's relationship. Now, I've danced around this subject a few times, but this is one of those instances where it really comes into play. There are many opinions as to the true nature of James's relationship with Buckingham, from I can't really add anything to the discussion, except that after reading correspondence between James and Villiers, this relationship seems to go way beyond any simple bromance or fatherly affection that I've ever seen. Regardless, what's important is that major political decisions will hinge on this relationship. James has always been a bit of an indecisive waverer, but in Benjamin Woolley's telling, James is now swooning and swaying all over the place, blubbering with tears and violent mood swings that seem a lot more like the actions of a jilted lover than a king in the midst of a crisis of authority. Where Buckingham used to gently joke and console the king to wield influence, now he openly criticized James. He doesn't need James anymore. He's got the prince on his side. And James seems emotionally wounded by it all. At first, the king just sulked and tried to get away from everything that was going on. He'd set off for the country for some hunting and convalescing. And this suited Buckingham and the prince just fine. James could only complicate matters. And this would be proven true in fairly short order. James himself had asked Parliament for their opinion. And the answer was resoundingly positive. Scrap the Spanish match and bring military action against Spain. But when a delegation from Parliament approached James to have him sign off on their resolution to trash the match, James was suddenly coy about it all again. 
Essentially telling them, yeah, thanks for your opinion and all, but I'm not really bound by any of this, and right now I'm not feeling it. And then James really peed on everyone's parade. He began dropping numbers on the parliament. As in, the 700,000 pounds sterling in personal debt, James had been expecting the parliament to do something about. And he wasn't even going to consider a war unless he was granted 900,000 pounds. These numbers are defensible to some degree. But to drop this anvil onto everyone's heads at this point in negotiations, well, it broke the spell of the Blessed Revolution in less than two months. Parliament was outraged, and Prince Charles and Buckingham were mortified. Things were going to be a fight from here on out. There was still some good news for the happy Parliament, though. One side still really wanted a war, and the other side still really wanted some money. So there was still room to negotiate something. So everybody, except for King James, rolled up their sleeves and tried to work out a deal. And just before Easter 1624, a subsidy deal was worked out. 300,000 pounds would be raised for defense, fixing up fortifications and the Navy, that sort of thing, with vague promises of more money should a war break out. In return, there'd be an official declaration that England and Spain were quits, and there was much rejoicing. A carnival-like atmosphere is described out on the streets of the kingdom, a rabidly anti-Spanish and anti-Catholic one. After the Easter break, the knives would come out in Parliament and the pro-Spanish Lord Treasurer, Lionel Cranfield, is taken down through impeachment. And as a stipulation to granting the subsidies and the taxes, Parliament creates a council of war to oversee how the 300,000 pounds will be spent. And, well, watch this space. In April, Parliament will force Charles to swear an oath that should he marry a Catholic, that the children would be raised Protestant, that any Catholic worship would be discreet and limited to the Queen, and that the marriage treaty would in no way benefit English recusants. In other words, no toleration for Catholics as a condition for the royal marriage. And Charles would swear to this. And, well, watch that space too. 300,000 pounds, while nothing to sneeze at, wasn't remotely enough to run a war on or to fix any royal finances. But maybe there was still a route here to keep fruitful negotiations going. With some realistic trade-offs, the crown could get some realistic payoffs. But James was having none of it. He was already fed up with the strings that Parliament were tying to a paltry sum by James's estimation. Charles and Buckingham were working overtime trying to run interference on James. Through impeachment, house arrest, and an intimidation, they tried to keep any Spaniards or Spanish party go-betweens from having any audience with the king. And it's in this atmosphere that Sir George Calvert decides to sell his office and suddenly remembers he has properties in Ireland and Newfoundland that he should really go check up on. The fact that Calvert gracefully volunteers to step down and get out of the way is probably one of the reasons why Buckingham doesn't view him as an outright threat or enemy and is willing to call him back home when the Wheel of Fortune turns in 1627. But Spanish agents and diplomats would find their way to James. A secret note passed here, a secret meeting behind James's bedchamber there. And they would try to convince him that something could still be worked out between Spain and England. And they would try to poison James's feelings towards his favorite. They told James it had been Buckingham who had acted a fool in Spain and who had knowingly sabotaged the years of hard work English and Spanish diplomats had been engaged in. And soon they came to James with tales of a dastardly scheme wherein Buckingham would retire James permanently to some country house and rule through Charles. 
The Spanish diplomats had no real evidence, but James would use this to reassert himself over George and Charles. There was a very tearful and very public lashing out at his favorite on St. George's Day, and Buckingham knew the worm had turned. He was in trouble. A week later, he was summoned before James and grilled harshly for hours about his involvement in plots and about his unforgivably popular behavior as of late. The Duke would successfully defend himself, but James had made his point. Who's your daddy? It was all a bit much for Buckingham, and he'd go down with a serious illness for over a month. And James would dote over him in his sickbed like a mother hen. There, there, I'll make it better. Things can all go back to the way they were now. And it's during Buckingham's illness in May that James would prorogue Parliament. Essentially, he postpones it, puts it on hold so that maybe he could call it back later at a more convenient date. And maybe this was James' intention. I kind of doubt it. But either way, James will die before that ever happens. And thus, the Blessed Revolution slips into a coma it will never come out of. But even though James had corrected his favorite and nullified parliamentary meddling for the time being, he would not fully bridle his son and the Duke's ambitions. He wasn't going to let them be popular darlings of a parliament that was impeaching his friends and ministers. But he seems to have let the Spanish match go and given his blessing to pursuing a French one. He would also seem to be finally backing some concrete military action to restore his daughter to the Palatinate, to restore honor to the Stuarts and to England, and to help the Protestant cause. And so that summer, negotiations would begin with the French over the proposed marriage between Prince Charles and Princess Henrietta Maria of France. And with that came the possibility of a military alliance between the two kingdoms. Also that summer, the recruitment and conscription of thousands of men from England and Scotland would begin. The Stuarts were finally rousing themselves to join the expanding Europe-wide conflict versus the Habsburgs. Now, it wouldn't be entirely true to say that James hadn't lifted a pinky to help defend the Palatinate before it had been overrun by the Habsburgs. He had allowed a small force of volunteers to head over to Germany in 1620 under the command of Sir Horace Vere. Vere, along with a few other notables like Sir John Ogle, Sir John Hardwood, and Sir Edward Cecil, represented some of the few experienced commanders England had in continental warfare at this time. These guys were mostly in the pay of the Dutch and had been part of the English contingent serving in the Low Countries against the Spanish since the days of Elizabeth. After Habsburg forces had crushed the Protestant Bohemian Revolt at the Battle of White Mountain in 1620, there were only a few small Protestant armies fighting in the name of Frederick V. Veer and company would engage in a series of brave yet futile diversionary sallies and holding actions in Germany. Sir John Harwood would die in a siege, but Veer, Ogle, and Cecil would all survive to play a further role in today's story. They would all be members of that council of war created by Parliament to control the purse strings on military expenditures. Another champion for the Protestant cause in these early days of the Thirty Years' War was the reckless and brave Christian of Brunswick, a German prince who would lose an arm for the cause, along with most of his battles, it must be said. But the most famous military commander trying to keep Protestant Palatinate hopes alive was a cat named Count Ernst von Mansfeld. He was actually a Catholic mercenary from Luxembourg, but he harbored ill will towards the Habsburg side and hired himself out to anyone who would give him a commission and an army to keep in the field against the emperor and his allies. France, Savoie, Holland, the Palatinate had all used his services so far. 
And when I say famous, I mean he was famous in his time. Because this was the era where pamphleteering, printed news, and propaganda was exploding as an industry and a medium of communication. There's a sort of information revolution going on, early modern internet. Now, some landless tenant in Yorkshire could read or have read to him news of what was going on in Germany, complete with woodcuts depicting scenes and faces. Often these pamphlets and broadsheets would describe accounts of atrocities against Protestants that followed in the wake of murderous Catholic armies. You know, stories about babies being impaled on pikes and roasted over fires, complete with illustrations. They'd also give news from the battlefront and relate the feats of the brave Protestant armies and commanders who led them as they tried to stave off the Habsburg advance. Ernst von Mansfeld figured heavily in these news dispatches, to the point where your average person on the streets of London probably knew who he was and saw him as a heroic figure of resistance. In truth, Mansfeld's military record was rather spotty. His motivations were thoroughly mercenary, and his employers, like Frederick V of the Palatinate, often quickly lost faith and trust in him. Generally, he was not seen as a hero by those who'd actually experienced his armies marching into their lands, even if he was ostensibly there to protect or liberate them. Because a feature of warfare in this conflict were relatively large mercenary armies that lived directly off the land, and that were incentivized by how much they could make and take while on campaign. So, friend or foe, when an army came to town, they would descend like locusts on any food supplies they could find. If you're lucky, that's all they'd take and they'd move on quickly. But you might just find yourself subject to pillage, murder, rape, kidnapping, and extortion on an apocalyptic scale, before they burn what they couldn't take with them in an effort to leave nothing for the opposing army. The opposing army that's going to march in right behind them a few weeks later and do the same thing to you. By late 1623, resistance to the Habsburgs had been swept off the board in Germany. Protestant armies were disbanded or retreated into Holland. And by early 1624, Ernst von Mansfeld was in the market for a new commission, just as the English parliament were clamoring for war with Spain. Sensing an opportunity, Mansfeld pays a visit to London in April with much fanfare. Londoners cheer him in the streets, and as a big middle finger to Spain, put him up at public expense in the posh rooms at St. James's Palace that were originally going to house the Spanish Infanta after the Spanish match had finally come through. What Mansfeld was peddling at this point was a joint English-French expedition, capitalizing on each kingdom's desire to seize territory from the Habsburgs. In the case of the English, it was the restoration of the Palatinate to James's son-in-law and his daughter whilst the French craved the Valtellina, a highly strategic region of valleys and mountain passes in northern Italy. The French had dynastic claims on the region, and seizing it could effectively cut the Habsburgs' Italian possessions off from their German ones along the French border. In an audience with King James, Mansfeld claimed he could easily take back the Palatinate with 10,000 foot soldiers, 3,000 horse, 6 guns, and 20,000 pounds a month to keep the sinews of war moving. James himself was momentarily caught up in the exciting fervor of Mansfeld's visit, as well as the mercenary's sales pitch, which was designed to be everything James wanted to hear. And the king promised to supply Mansfeld with everything he needed, so long as the French would match the amount of cash and troops that England would be supplying. Mansfeld then took this promise back to France and continued negotiating on that side of the channel. So as early as April 1624, the English and the French were being drawn together in a series of negotiations, deals, and promises aimed at checking the power of the Habsburgs. But as we'll see, the web being woven will be a tangled mess. The French had their own agendas to pursue. 
The Parliament had their own ideas about how the war should be waged and how the modest sums they had voted James should be spent. And banding about troop numbers on paper was one thing, but the reality was something very different. And this seems like as good a time as any to segue into a discussion about England's military. Or more accurately, England's lack of a military. You will remember that when Queen Elizabeth died in 1603, she was dealing both with revolts in Ireland and with a global conflict with the Spanish Empire. These were horrendously expensive affairs, employing thousands and thousands of men. And James wasn't keen on pursuing either conflict. By 1604, England was at peace on both fronts. Armies were disbanded, and letters of mark and reprisal, the legal license for ship's captains to engage in privateering, were revoked. And basically, a generation in England would come up with no real experience of war. In times of peace, England had no standing army. Sometimes this is laid upon the Stuart dynasty door as yet another example of their military ineptitude, but this tradition is much older than them. In fact, there is a long-standing strain of mistrust for standing armies in English culture that will last well into the history of the United States. A standing army means the sort of heavy, sustained taxation that the English were not particularly fond of at the time, nor did they have the political system or infrastructure to really handle it, even if they were. There were also political misgivings about a standing army. Kings feared it being used against them as a tool of rebellion, and everyone else feared it being used by the king as a tool of repression. So there was no permanent government apparatus to raise, supply, and train a contingent of professional troops to remain battle-ready. There's technically a very small army over in Ireland, made up of mostly native Irish recruits. But even that one would be unpaid, unfed, unruly, and the source of all sorts of trouble. In England, there were only the trained bands, basically local militias, who got together every once in a while for maneuvers and a bit of social drinking. And were on call for the defense of the kingdom. And even they were specifically legally exempt from having to leave the kingdom to fight. If you wanted to live the soldier's life and cut your teeth on a real battlefield, the thing to do was to create or to join a mercenary company and travel abroad to where the fighting was in search of commissions. This was a good way to lose a limb or get yourself killed somewhere very far from home. But soldiering was a valuable skill and it honed a lot of great men. Just look at early American colonial history. John Smith of Jamestown, Miles Standish of Plymouth, even Sir Arthur Aston of Avalon. These are all guys who made their bones fighting the Turks in Russia or Transylvania or by fighting the Spanish in the Low Countries. They knew how to handle themselves and how to get things done. And they were able to parlay that in one way or another into a position of power or respect in these colonies, often in ways that defied their humble social class. But they're a rare commodity at this point. Oh, there are plenty of prospective military officers, members of the nobility or the gentry who are seeking commissions, and some of them might have a bit of experience or are surrounded by people who do. But as often as not, these commissions were just another form of patronage. A politician supported a military adventure because he thought he could pack the officer corps with his people. So an essential problem for any English plans to liberate the Palatinate or whatever is that there aren't too many of these genuinely skilled, experienced soldiers. And what few there are, are often working out of the country. And while they'd likely heed the call of their own king and country in England's hour of need, that still costs money. Lots and lots of money. And as we'll see, money is the most essential problem of all. The king's broke. 
And the parliament, who are the only ones who can actually raise the taxes to pay for an army, well, we'll get more into that down the road. Depending on volunteers to heed the recruiter's drum was too unreliable of a way to, well, drum up thousands of men for a major expedition. Especially since pay and living standards in the military were notoriously bare and harsh. The only real option was conscription, which could be an ugly sort of business all around. And I wanted to describe how it works because I think it goes a long way in explaining the performance of the English and the coming military misadventures. I do this with the indispensable help of Stephen J. Stearns' Conscription in English Society in the 1620s, an article which I lean on heavily for this portion of the podcast. So the king wants to raise an army to aid in the recapture of the Palatinate. He and his advisors come up with a number, let's say 10,000 men. His privy council sends the official word out to the lord lieutenants of each county of just how many men they want pressed from each county, who then pass it on to the deputy lieutenants to oversee the process, who then pass the real legwork down to the constables, bailiffs, justices of the peace, aldermen, etc., etc., depending on the local government jurisdiction. It's they who choose the lucky individuals who get to fill out the quotas. These fresh recruits, no doubt the best physical specimens of the county, brimming with pride and patriotism, would be marched to a county-wide collection hub where they'd receive the king's shilling, a payment of coin which signified that the conscripted man had been officially pressed into the king's service. The king's shilling at this point in history is really just an optimistic euphemism. The payment could be as low as six or even four pence, which is less than half. These newly pressed men, once collected at the county hub, would then be marched by agents called conductors, who sound suspiciously like an armed guard, to a central hub, where pressed men from all the counties were gathered. Here, commissioned officers would inspect the men and cull out the completely unfit for duty, and new pressees would have to be found in order to fill out the quota and make up the difference. What happened next? I'm not exactly sure. Theoretically, there'd be some sort of training going on or something. But in a lot of the accounts, just feeding, sheltering, and controlling the army seemed to be a full-time problem. And I have a sneaking suspicion officers weren't keen on actually arming these guys yet. But I could be wrong. Then at some point, the soldiers would be herded into cramped ships for weeks and months at a time, before being spit out into a foreign hostile environment where getting provisions would be even more difficult. And they'd suddenly have to face people who wanted to kill them all under the command of officers who may have received their commissions based on political patronage, not because of their merit or experience as an officer. And that's the rosy-hued version of how it works. In reality, there were all sorts of corruptions, inverse incentives, morale-crushing hardships, and logistical handicaps that plagued the entire process. For one thing, county and local authorities had little or no incentive to actually fill their quotas with physically stout laboring men let alone anyone who was particularly skilled at anything. They didn't want to lose their own human capital. They needed them. And these people usually had more political pull in their communities and could get out of service. So at best, men were pressed from the poorest ranks of the landless tenants. But conscription was also a convenient way of getting rid of the unemployed, vagrants, or petty criminals. People with physical and mental handicaps might be added to the rolls to take a bit of the burden off of local poor relief. It was occasionally used as a way to settle personal scores. If you pissed off your local alderman or sheriff, you might just find yourself on the conscription list. There are even examples of constables grabbing men who just happened to be passing through the county on legitimate business and pressing them into service on the spot. If you had the means, you might buy your way out of conscription or supply a replacement. 
And this is just another one of those areas where the line between corruption and the standard operating procedures of government officials gets a little blurry. Again, there's no money. The whole reason this job is being foisted on the county administrations is that the Crown can't afford to pay the military, captains, and officers to do the job themselves, which is intrinsically more efficient and traditionally how things would work. But again, there's no money at this point. And feeding and housing and transporting the prestes cost money. What little public money the counties had could be put to much better use by their estimation. And no public officials took these jobs so that they could be personally ruined by funding all of this themselves with their own money. In fact, it's quite the opposite. They expected to make money. Even public servants today don't work for free. So ways of covering the overhead, so to speak, naturally sprang up. Chief among them was overpressing. If the county quota called for a thousand men, you raise 1,500 men and shake down as many as possible as you can to buy their way out of service. This is how you could cover costs, or if you're good at it, how you can make a tidy little profit. And this type of corruption was present all the way down the line. Many conscripted men were lost while being conducted from the counties to the central hub. Some snuck away, but many likely just bought off the conductors. Conscription caused resentment on all levels. Not just on those who were pressed. It caused friction between the counties and the crown, between the counties and the military. And probably worst of all, politically anyway, was the economic burden on those subjects who were forced to quarter the troops. This would become a major political issue down the line towards the English Civil Wars and beyond. You can even see echoes of it in our American Bill of Rights, the Third Amendment. No soldier shall in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law. Technically, the Third Amendment came about for specific political reasons in a specifically late 18th century American colonial context, but it's rooted in an age-old distrust and dislike of the practice of quartering troops within English constitutionalism. Even the Quartering Act of 1765, which riled up many colonial patriots, explicitly tried to limit the impact and unpopularity of quartering to public land and property because they knew it would be a touchy subject. And this tradition dates back to the period we're dealing with in today's podcast, the mid-1620s, if not earlier. And I guess that's why the Third Amendment always seemed like one of the more inexplicable and archaic bits of the U.S. Constitution when I learned about it in school. Armies are sheltered and fed at army bases. I always just took that as a given. Also, nowadays, we have a fairly positive view of those in military service. If you haven't served yourself... Chances are you have close friends and family who have. Public opinion is high right now. It is honorable to serve. So why would people get so testy about housing soldiers if the need arose, to the point of putting it in the Bill of Rights? Well, lose those 21st century views of the soldiers as honorable heroes, or even those late 18th century views of soldiers as being remotely trained or disciplined. In our 1620s context, it may be more instructive to think of quartering troops as people who were barely subsisting as it is, suddenly being forced to house and feed a pack of desperate hobos, who probably have more in common with convict labor than with a citizen militia, and who, because of fear, neglect, boredom, and resentment, can get a bit unruly, and might take your house or your town apart in a mutinous orgy of pillage and destruction. And you can just go ahead and watch that space too.
Okay, so the condition of the army was suboptimal. But what about the navy? England's wooden walls, the keystone of national pride, the bulwark of the kingdom. English fleets were the scourge of the seas in the 1570s and 80s. And that reputation lived on, not only in the minds of many Englishmen, but internationally. The Spanish were genuinely concerned about the threat of the dreaded English navy being let off its leash. But they needn't have worried much. By the early 1600s, the English navy was a soggy, mildewed paper tiger. And like a lot of things that tend to get blamed solely on the Stuart dynasty, the rot technically began to set in at the end of Elizabeth's reign. The basic structure of the navy was this. There's a small core of royal ships owned and maintained by the monarch. And when needs be, English merchant fleets could be pulled into service to pad out the ranks. For centuries, these English merchant ships were armed to the teeth and honeymooned as privateers whenever the opportunity presented itself. They knew how to fight. A whole culture and economy arose in places like Devon geared towards a highly aggressive merchant marine. There was all sorts of private money being invested in these operations because of the potential payoff of, say, capturing a Spanish ship full of silver or slaves. The queen herself was sometimes a major investor, and the odd capture of a treasure ship could give a much-needed injection of money into royal coffers. In this atmosphere, England develops a sort of A-team in naval success and development. It's like a sports franchise when everything clicks, with a good manager, good players, a good team spirit, and a run of good form and good luck, a team might dominate the league for two or three seasons. But eventually, there are personnel changes and financial complications that seep in. Other teams learn how to play you, and someone a bit leaner, meaner, and more hungry comes along to knock you off your perch. All these sort of things were going on by the end of Elizabeth's reign. The superstar players like Sir Francis Drake start to die off, retire, or fall out of favor with the Queen. Even the relatively small royal fleet is insanely expensive and hard to maintain, and things begin to break down. A culture of corruption sets in at the administrative positions of the Admiralty. So even if you throw money at the problem, it's not necessarily going to go where it needs to. When James, the brokest king in Christendom, takes the throne, there's little he can do about it. Basic upkeep is a major expenditure. Consider that a navy at this point consists mostly of wood, rope, and canvas, and you can imagine what years of just sitting there in all types of weather with little or no maintenance might do to those materials. The king may have 37 royal ships on paper, but virtually none of them were remotely seaworthy, let alone armed or manned with sailors. James wasn't oblivious to the sorry state of his navy, but there wasn't a lot he could do about it financially, and many of his problems were exacerbated by the unintended consequences of his own policies, chiefly peace with Spain. On one side of the ledger, there were obvious financial benefits to not being at war. It may also protect you and your newly budding colonial interests from invasion. James is also hoping for a Spanish match and all of that sweet, sweet dowry money. But on the cost side, it has a corrosive effect on the battle readiness of the kingdom. It threw a wrench into the entire privateering industry. When James revokes letters of mark and reprisal in 1603, he's not only creating animosity with some very powerful investors in the trade, He's leaving a lot of captains with the choice of turn pirate or starve. And so there's an explosion of piracy in the English Channel, the Irish Sea, Newfoundland, and most notoriously North Africa, where a lot of English and Dutch pirates are converting to Islam and working as corsairs, not only raiding shipping, but even invading European coastal towns and hauling off captives to be sold in North African slave markets. 
all of which hinders trade even more and gives the king even less money to work with because he's not getting the customs duties. James tries to build a few new ships to patrol the seas, but it's not enough. He tries to form commissions to look into the corruption of the admiralty, but they're mostly staffed by the same corrupt officials he'd ultimately like to root out, and nothing comes of it. He tries to offer amnesty to pirates in order to end the raiding and bring experienced fighters back into the fold, but the pirates have little incentive to work for a royal navy with few jobs, crappy pay, and crappier conditions. By the early 1620s, it's all getting worse. For a myriad of reasons, the baseline English economy has already been pretty much crap for a century or more. But in the early 1620s, the wool trade, one of the few things still making money for England, takes a hit. This is partly due to an ill-advised scheme to chisel the Dutch out of the manufacturing end of the trade. It simultaneously managed to both not work and to piss off the Dutch, who were England's primary customer. Also, as all these conflicts in Europe start flaring up in 1620, everyone begins tinkering with the value of their money to pay for mercenaries, which wreaks all sorts of havoc. English merchants go out of business or begin selling off their ships to cut costs, so there are fewer and fewer private ships for the crown to call upon should the need arise. In many cases, both the merchants and James begin relying on Dutch ships to carry their goods and to police the waterways which makes things just a little awkward when James doubles down on the Spanish match right at the same time the Dutch would be resuming the 80 years war with Spain. And the Dutch, and later the French, will begin seizing goods and raiding English shipping in retaliation. And there won't be much the English can do about it. In short, it's just one big cycle of suck for England's military capabilities, as well as their ability to afford any of it. And it's the reality we need to keep in mind as England attempts to launch several major military operations over the next couple of years. Knowing the shortcomings of the British military circa 1625, it's a fair question to ask those who still wanted to resort to military intervention on the continent, just what in the hell were you thinking? Were they stupid? Were they deluded? Were they callously oblivious to the lives of their soldiers? I think we can safely say there's a bit of all three going on. But in their defense, there are a few contextual political realities of this early modern era that might explain some of the decision making. Namely, the political purpose of warfare. Modern Americans would probably recognize roughly two types of warfare. There's total war, you know, an epic struggle where all the nation's resources are geared towards completely defeating the other side and gaining their unconditional surrender. You know, think World War II or the American Civil War. We also have police actions, where we, as a superpower, get involved militarily in the affairs of weaker nations in order to topple a threat or to maintain a favorable status quo for our interests. In early modern Europe, you can definitely find a few examples of those types of warfare. But in the main, war is mostly just an extension of international, or maybe interdynastic, diplomacy. Military force was just another tool of leverage at the negotiating table. And negotiations were constantly ongoing as political entities all struggled to empower themselves while making sure no one else got too powerful. In this light, the point of raising 10,000 troops might just be to bring your enemies to the table before any fighting even happens. And the principal aims of these wars were usually much more narrow and achievable than unconditional surrender. 
You didn't necessarily have to utterly defeat the other side. You just have to make things scary, expensive, and obnoxious enough to have them agree to talk turkey about conceding to a few of your demands. And then, as now, you could also increase your bargaining power by forming alliances. Mobbing up on an enemy from multiple directions suddenly makes your raggedy military look a bit more intimidating. And the best way to seal an alliance in a dynastic political sphere is through royal marriage. And in 1624, Charles is the most eligible bachelor this side of the Ural Mountains. Understanding England is relatively weak and poor, you'd also want to bring along someone with a bit more money and a bit more muscle. Someone with centuries of animosity towards the Habsburgs that could help twist the vice on Spain and bring matters to the negotiating table more rapidly than going it alone. And France was the obvious choice. Okay, maybe it's not the obvious choice to many Protestants at the time. And even nowadays with hindsight, the French match can easily be interpreted as one of the key poisoning factors to not only Charles' reign, but for the rest of Stuart dynasty history to come. If Charles had been a little more keen on marrying a Protestant, and a little more willful about it over his father's wishes, like his sister had been, a major source of friction between the crown and the parliament may never have existed. It can seem like things would have been so much easier if Charles had just gone along with popular public opinion and married a nice Protestant girl. Well, would it have been? Let's take a quick stroll down this alley of speculative alternate history. I'll even give the pro-parliament side a boon they wouldn't have actually had in real life. We'll assume every Protestant kingdom or state had an eligible and willing queen-to-be worthy of Charles's hand. This would not have actually been the case. So without any further ado, let's bring our first contestant out on today's exciting episode of Royal Marriage. Contestant number one is the United Provinces. They're Protestant. They have what is fast becoming one of the most kick-ass navies in history, and they're already at war with Spain. Seems like this choice would be a slam dunk. But despite some religious similarities, long-term relations between the Dutch and the English were very complicated, and often murderous. The Dutch would remain England's chief competition in world trade and naval power throughout the 1600s. Also, the Dutch are one of the few out there bucking the whole royal dynasty trend. The United Provinces are essentially a republic, or a federation of republics right now, and not suited to monarchical marriages. That is, until the glorious revolution of 1688, when a group of powerful men in England invite William III of the House of Orange to invade England and usurp the throne. But I'm afraid that's a long way in the future and the Dutch are hereby disqualified. <laughs> Contestant number two hails from one of the Protestant German principalities in the Holy Roman Empire. Which one? Pick anyone you like. They're all bad ideas. They weren't terribly rich or powerful even before a huge war started raging across Germany, and before everybody started debasing the value of their money to pay for mercenary armies. And they will instantly pull England even deeper into a conflict England can't afford. Even the most powerful Protestant principality, Saxony, wants no part of this war, and will side with the Habsburgs for as long as they can manage to get away with it. In fact, it was Elizabeth Stuart's insistence on marrying Prince Elector Frederick that admired the Stuart dynasty in this mess they're in now. And while Protestant patriots in England like to talk a big game about protecting their Protestant brethren abroad, when it's time to finance a war, they're nowhere to be found. Another German marriage would be doubling down on an already disastrous hand. Contestant number three is the Kingdom of Denmark. The Danish king, Christian IV, is one of the richest monarchs in Europe. 
and he's about to take the reins as defender of the Protestant faith as he kicks off the second phase of the Thirty Years' War, the Danish phase. The first piece of bad news is that the Danish are going to totally suck at this, and their entrance into the war will quickly become an expensive disaster. The second piece of bad news is that Charles I is already tied to this albatross. He's already part of the family. His mom was Queen Anne of Denmark. And in heeding Denmark's dynastic call to arms, the Stuarts will be forced into rushing a marriage with France in order to secure payments to the Danish war effort and in enacting the infamous forced loans of 1626 and 1627. Even without further dynastic entanglement, the Danish are going to cost England dearly. Kingdom of Sweden, come on down! Thanks to the martial prowess of Swedish King Gustavus Adolphus II, Sweden will emerge for a time as a major power in Europe, and will finally start racking up some victories for the Protestant side in the Thirty Years' War. Trouble is, Sweden's biggest rivals aren't the Habsburgs. It's the Danish, whom the Stuarts are already tied to the hip with dynastically. And Swedish expansionism is overturning all sorts of apple carts in the Baltic Sea. Hitching to them could entangle you into even more distant conflicts and upset trade relations with your other Baltic trading partners. They're a potentially powerful ally, but they come with a lot of baggage, and the cost-to-benefit ratio is skewed. Contestant number five is the girl next door. Forget international politics. Marry a nice Protestant English girl from any of the worthy English noble families. First of all, this will do nothing to help fix money problems. And there is so much recent history to suggest it will only exacerbate domestic strife. Just ask the Woodvilles or the Boleyn family. One of the duties of an English monarch is to balance and arbitrate amongst the great noble houses. Marrying one of their daughters completely destroys this balance. Also, Charles already has an overly powerful and entrenched royal court favorite which would leave Charles with the choice of A, marrying outside of Buckingham's family and creating an instant tug of war between Villiers and the Queen's family, or B, marrying into the Villiers family and having the rest of the English nobility go nuclear. This was a big concern. Buckingham somehow ending up a royal was one of the great specters haunting the rumor mill around him, and it very well could have caused instant and dramatic internal strife, to the point where it may have moved the timetable of the Civil War up a few decades. Contestant number six is France. Okay, hear me out. Yeah, they're Catholic, and they're one of England's oldest enemies. That makes things tricky, popular opinion-wise. But they're strong, despite their internal issues, and they have a competitive historical hatred of both the Empire and Spain that may be even more intense than their hatred of England. Or if not, at the very least, the Habsburgs were a way more clear and present danger to the French than the Stuarts were at this point. And it makes perfect sense on a grand political level that any anti-Habsburg alliance should be a multi-denominational one. That way, the Habsburgs can't play their religion card and can't make their dynastic land grabs a simple matter of defending the Catholic faith. Because let's be honest here, if it really came down to an all-out war between Catholics versus Protestants, the Protestants are way outgunned at this point in history. It makes sense to seek alliances across the religious divide, and to avoid the great apocalyptic battle that so many Puritans seem intent on having. Plus, a rich kingdom like France means a big fat dowry if you marry one of its princesses. Okay, admittedly, the issue of Protestant Huguenots in France is a potential minefield, 
But the whole point of this marriage is to strengthen England's hand in protecting Protestantism abroad, right? I mean, English Protestants will surely be able to look past Henrietta Maria's religion for the greater good. And it's not like Parliament are going to make this an issue. They'll see the bigger picture and understand that this is for the good of the kingdom. And it'll be a good deal all around. So long as we can get that military alliance, that big chunk of dowry money, and not make any stupid promises based on a ticking clock and a fatally weak negotiating hand. Realistically, the French match was pretty much the only option for Charles. There weren't actually a bunch of princesses hanging around waiting to get married. Using my super hindsight powers, I do wonder if maybe holding off on a marriage altogether until the situation improved may have been the wiser move. But then Parliament would have probably just made it their business to pester Charles constantly about marrying, like they did with Elizabeth I. And he might have ended up taking too long and never pulling the trigger on a wedding and dying without an heir to the dynasty, just like Elizabeth did. Anyway, it's too late. The wheels are already in motion on England redirecting her foreign policy towards military intervention on the continent to restore Stuart dynasty honor and to satisfy Parliament's supposed desire to protect Protestantism abroad. The French match is a necessary component of a grand plan that you can't just put the brakes on without squandering a massive amount of money, political capital, and personal reputations. Everything needs to keep moving. Which is exactly why the French are going to eat the English alive during marriage negotiations. And the barbed hook that the king, the prince, and the duke will not be able to wiggle themselves off of, not if they want a French match, is the issue of toleration for Catholics in England. King Louis XIII was adamant that James would cease enforcing the recusancy laws as a precondition to marrying off his younger sister to Prince Charles. The very thing both Charles and James promised Parliament they wouldn't do in April 1624. Now when they made those promises, they meant it. The French match was only in its theoretical stage at that point, and the English were not yet fully aware of how little leverage they possessed. When the French first demand tolerance for English recusants, James and Charles both firmly declined, and they would continue to do so for some time. But as the months wore on, international pressure to form a grand anti-Habsburg alliance would build up. At some point, the Danish and the Swedish are having a bidding war with England on who'd head the next phase of the war in Germany. James would ultimately take the Danish up on their plan, thanks in part to dynastic connections between Denmark and the Stuarts, and more importantly, because they pitched the cheaper plan to England. Meanwhile, Sweden kind of leaves the alliance in a huff at this point and goes off to pursue their own military aims in Poland for a few years. Holland, France, Savoy, and Venice are all trying to orchestrate some sort of military cooperation. And there's promises of soldiers and money being thrown around all over the place. And the more England starts to get involved, the more critical working out a comprehensive deal with France becomes to their future plans. Because so many of the English plans are unfunded, or barely funded, French financial aid to help England bankroll all of these promises that they're making to the Danish and the Dutch is an essential ingredient to making it all work. Buckingham, especially, begins to feel his position at court depends upon the success of the French match. And it's the Duke who will start chipping away at James and Charles's resolve on the issue of non-enforcement of the recusancy laws. By late August 1624, James is beginning to show signs of cracking, and he starts trying to find a way to appear to acquiesce to French demands, but to do so in a way that saves face, or that gives him an out when he eventually has to go face Parliament over this. Louis XIII wouldn't budge, though. Louis XIII couldn't budge. 
Because as much as religion was a hot-button issue in England, things were way worse in France. Combine the nastiest bits of Henry VIII, Bloody Marys, or Elizabeth's religious persecutions in England, and you'd still be playing tiddlywinks when compared to the French wars of religion. Between 1562 and 1598, there'd be a series of wars and on-again, off-again civil strife in France, with death tolls sometimes estimated as high as 3 million people, who would die not just from war, but from the famine that war created, and then from the disease and pestilence that the famine created. And the period would be pockmarked by events like the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. On the night of St. Bartholomew's Day Eve, 1572, Parisian Catholics quietly locked the gates to their city so that no one could escape. And at the signal of a tolling church bell, they began dragging their Protestant neighbors out into the streets and butchering them, men, women, and children, before dumping their bodies into the Seine River. Thousands would die in Paris over the next couple days, and thousands more all over France over the next couple of weeks as copycat riots began taking hold in other French towns. It's bitter, it's vicious, it's carnage. After 1598, there's a bit of a lull and a stalemate. The Huguenots are a minority, maybe 10% of the population of France. They are nominally loyal to the French king, and they are nominally legally protected to some degree by the Edict of Nantes. But the wars of religion have radicalized those who refuse to convert back to Catholicism. They are armed. They live within their own walled cities, located mostly in the southwest of France, and they essentially exist as a state within a state. Meanwhile, Louis XIII simultaneously faces challenges to his royal authority from all sorts of semi-autonomous Catholic regional powers within his kingdom, as well as Catholic factions of the nobility trying to maintain their own traditional rights and power. And one of the easiest ways they can attack Louis is by claiming he's not doing enough to deal with the Huguenots and foreign Protestant powers, basically to question his devotion to Catholicism. The previous king of France, Henry IV, who was both King Louis and Princess Henrietta Maria's father, was actually a Protestant when he took the throne, but he eventually converted to Catholicism to try and bring peace and stability back to the realm. He tried to steer a halfway tolerant middle course for France, but he ended up murdered by a Catholic fanatic for not being hardcore Catholic enough. To prove to everyone else his devotion to the true Catholic faith, and to further centralization of his own kingly authority, King Louis XIII would keep chiseling away at the Huguenots until a full-blown Protestant rebellion breaks out in France in 1620. The Eighty Years' War is kicking back off up in the Netherlands, and the Protestant Bohemian Revolt has not yet been fully suppressed. So the Huguenot leaders are thinking, you know, it's now or never, and they rose in rebellion, hoping maybe to form their own Protestant Republic in the southwest of France, like United Provinces did in the Netherlands. What they got instead were a few more years of carnage, before what was known as the First Huguenot Rebellion settled back down into a tense stalemate in 1622. And this is the situation in France that English diplomats were walking into in 1624. Even if Louis personally believed the Habsburgs were more of a threat to his dynasty than any Protestant rebellion, he could not be seen to be allying himself with Protestants to wage war on his Catholic neighbors, not without some sort of tangible trade-off. And his line in the sand would be toleration for Catholics in England. With that, he could look both the Pope and the hardcore Catholics of his kingdom in the eye and say he was doing his part for the Counter-Reformation. If negotiations weren't going to be tough enough for the English, it's right about this time, August 1624, that the position of chief minister in France is being taken up by a man who lay much of the groundwork for turning the Kingdom of France into a world superpower. 
The future of France is now in the hands of one Cardinal Richelieu. Well, y'all know who he is. Are you are Cardinal Armand Duplessis de Richelieu, First Minister of Louis XIII? Oui. Cardinal, uh, would it be fair to say that you not only built up the centralized monarchy in France, but also perpetuated the religious schism in Europe? That's what they say. And did you persecute the Huguenots? Oui. And did you take even sterner measures against the great Catholic nobles who made common cause with foreign foes in defense of their feudal independence? I sure did that thing. In a pantheon built to the greatest statesman anywhere in history, some think his statue might be one of the ones holding up a corner of the building. He was brilliant, ruthless, slippery, but effective. And he's up against the Duke of Buckingham? And though, as we'll see, George Villiers will make a big impression on the French court and carve himself a little niche of immortality within French popular culture, he really wasn't playing in the same division at all. And as we inch closer to 1625, it becomes bleedingly obvious the English need the deal way more than the French do. Buckingham does everything in his power to argue for acquiescence to French demands. And to be fair, there are some perfectly good strategic reasons for the English to desire French aid, money, soldiers, and military access, but it's becoming equally bleedingly obvious that the French haven't really committed on paper to doing any of it, while the English have. Because towards the end of 1625, James and Charles would eventually sign agreements to protect English Catholics from oaths and from recusancy laws in return for the hand of Princess Henrietta Maria. And on Christmas Eve 1624, James would quietly order his courts, both secular and ecclesiastical, to no longer enforce the recusancy laws. Catholics who had been in prison on such charges would be released, and some would even have their recusancy fines paid back to them. Catholic priests would still be arrested and banished, but those with a cynical eye might just see this as sleight of hand to make it appear that the laws were still enforced, since the priests could probably just sneak right back in. James and Charles were trying to keep these developments on the DL as much as possible, but as we'll see on down the line, things would not go unnoticed by the Parliament. The King, the Prince, and the Duke were willing to risk the ire of Parliament because they desperately desired a comprehensive military alliance with France. Charles's marriage to a French princess was a promising first step, but while there were many verbal agreements promising military and financial aid and cooperation, what the English didn't have was an official signed agreement of military alliance with the French. So while the English were signing away concessions, the French were reciprocating with diplomatic pillow talk. And the consequences of all this will become apparent as soon as the rubber meets the road, during the first of England's military expeditions to the continent. Then there's the issue of Parliament. Remember that the £300,000 granted by Parliament for military expenditures was conditional. Parliament had created a council of war who would decide whether or not the funds were being spent in the way Parliament intended them to be. Without the council of war's approval, no checks from the treasury get written. And while there's nothing new about councils of war being summoned during wartime to debate grand strategy and pool military knowledge, there's something very different about these explicit powers they've been given over the purse. Warfare is constitutionally part of the Crown's jurisdiction. And here's yet another example of Parliament creating a potential check to the royal prerogative. And we'll get way more into the ongoing constitutional angles of what's going on between King and Parliament in a supplemental episode coming soon to a pod player near you. 
The important thing to remember for today's episode is that the Crown and the Parliament have different views on how this war is to be waged. And it's part of the reason James prorogued Parliament in May 1624, and again in October 1624, and then again in January 1625. Because dealing with a Parliament battle over every aspect of negotiations with the French, and with every detail of execution of England's military expeditions, was all just one too many chainsaws for James to be juggling right now. But the immediate consequence of this is that there's no easy legal way to get more money, because Parliament is not in session. In the summer of 1624, there's a wave of voluntary recruitment throughout Britain for men to go over and help serve in the Dutch army. Perhaps as many as 10,000 men would heed the call. Helping the Dutch military is part of the expenditure Parliament was fine with. According to Samuel Rawson Gardner in his book England Under the Duke of Buckingham and Charles I, 1624-1628, this uses up over £100,000 of the 300000 to pay the troops, who are otherwise being trained and housed by the Dutch. A sizable chunk is also being used to re-outfit the Navy as well, also part of what Parliament saw as legitimate expenditures. The expenditure the Council of War would not agree to, not initially anyways, was Count von Mansfeld's proposed expedition to take back the Palatinate. Generally speaking, what many in Parliament wanted was the cheapest, least diplomatically binding military option, and they wanted it aimed at the Spanish. This meant supporting British volunteers fighting on the Dutch side in Spain and in the Low Countries, and also a blue water strategy against Spanish interests, essentially going after Spanish shipping and bringing back the Elizabethan era privateering in the days of the Sea Dogs. There are perfectly good fiscal and strategic arguments for this strategy. Super hindsight powers will show it'd probably have been the smarter move. But it's also the popular strategy in Parliament because powerful men like the Earl of Warwick have been secretly investing heavily in piracy for years. This was their chance to legitimize and expand the trade they were already waist deep in. There's a privateering lobby in Parliament, essentially. To James, this made no sense. The entire point of his even agreeing to military intervention was to restore Frederick V to the Palatinate, to flex dynastic muscle, and to restore honor to the kingdom. To him, that was the only legitimate reason for war, not bankrolling state piracy. And his target wasn't the Spanish, it was the Austrian Habsburgs. Ernst von Mansfeld was a professional with experience, and he had promised results for a relatively modest sum. James had been bending over backwards to the French and the Danish and any other power he could in order to guarantee cooperation, financial aid, and a safe place to land his army with access to Germany. He was working on it, as it is the king's job to do. For years, parliamentary patriots have been giving James stick about not doing anything for his daughter and for the Protestant cause in Germany. And now that he is, they're suddenly against it? Hmm... And since when is it Parliament's power and privilege to run a war or tell the king who their son can marry? Whether it was under pressure from James or some sort of change of heart within the Council of War, they'd eventually agree to back Mansfeld's expedition. And in November 1624, Mansfeld was officially given his commission, and the order went out to raise 12,000 troops by conscription. In November. And from all over the kingdom, these pressies would be marched to the central hub in Dover in December. And all along the way, there are reports from eyewitnesses about what a pathetic, pitiable rabble this so-called army already was. This is the first time in a long time this level of conscription has been used, and morale is already rock bottom. 
than to force marches in the middle of winter. This is an era when armies often wouldn't fight in the winter. It was like a gentleman's agreement because they knew it sucked way too much. And just about the time the conscripts get to Dover, the money runs out. There's no pay for the troops, there's no supplies, and thanks to the weather, there aren't nearly enough ships in harbor to cross over the channel. And suddenly, there's thousands of unpaid, unfed men dumped into the middle of Dover. They're almost instantly mutinous. They wander the country, stealing livestock, burglarizing houses to get what they can to get by. Before long, they're threatening to hang the mayor and burn down the city if they don't get some money, food, and shelter. The Privy Council declares martial law, but they don't necessarily have the means to enforce it. Meanwhile, recriminations are flying everywhere. People want to know how Mansfeld spent the money he'd been given. Mansfeld's looking around saying, you only gave me money enough for two months, and that's come and gone. Finally, Prince Charles is able to acquire a personal loan that will pay the soldiers for one more month. And the English are able to make up for their lack of ships by impounding some German ships in their harbors. And they begin using them to embark the army onto in mid-January 1625. And it's just about at this point, with the ships being loaded, that a few deeper problems with the expedition are exposed. The first problem was James. Specifically, his desire to avoid a direct conflict with Spain. Because it's beginning to hit pathologically dangerous levels of self-deception at this point, And it will ruin what tiny chance the English have to make anything out of this expedition. Spanish diplomats are doubling their efforts to spin the English back towards the road to peace. Word is, they're even going to bring Count Gondomar out of retirement and back into service to try and influence James like he did in the early days. Whatever the reason, or lack thereof, James infamously sends clear orders that the troops embarking for the continent are only to be used for restoring the Palatinate. You are only to fight the Austrian Habsburgs and their allies. Do nothing to directly confront the Spanish Habsburg troops in the Netherlands, which makes little to no sense, considering James is already funding volunteers in Holland to fight the Spanish, and that there's no way the Spanish will side with the Protestant English over their Catholic Austrian family members in regards to the Palatinate. It's pure fantasy at this point. And the timing of all this is quite unfortunate, because the diplomatic sands are already shifting, and the true value of France's vague promises are about to be laid bare. Mansfeld's whole scheme was that this would be a joint Anglo-French expedition, and that the English would be able to land in friendly French territory before marching on with the aid of French cavalry to the Palatinate. Mansfeld was also supposed to aid the French at some point in occupying the Valtellina in northern Italy. Quid pro quo. It's what Mansfeld's whole deal with the French was based on. But back in November, the French went ahead and moved into the Valtellina themselves with resounding success. Turns out, they didn't need Mansfeld. His stock instantly plummeted with the French, and suddenly, aiding the English wasn't seen as strategically important. Now what the English could do for their French and Dutch allies would be to use this army to relieve the Dutch town of Breda, which was currently under siege by the Spanish. And with the English troops embarked and ready to go, Mansfeld's already leaning towards this option. If he ever believed in his own sales pitch to James about being able to retake the Palatinate, he didn't seem to believe it now. He didn't have an army, he had a floating humanitarian crisis. With Parliament prorogued, English funding was dried up. And they're supposed to go fight with victorious veteran Catholic armies in Germany? In the dead of winter? Without any money or supplies? Or even worse, without any allies at this point? Most of the Protestant princes in Germany still don't want this war. They're trying to calm things down. There'll be no help there. 
And when James refuses to aid lifting the siege of Breda, he hands Louis XIII a gilt-edged reason to wave off any of those vague promises to let the English land at Calais and travel through French territory onto the Palatinate. Mansfeld becomes privy to this change in French attitudes before James does, and he's already dropping hints at his English officers that he's going to take the army to the Netherlands to relieve Breda. That way, there may be some money, food, and help waiting on the other side. English money has run out, and Mansfeld knows he needs the French and the Dutch. When James gets wind that his mercenary commander is about to pull something shady, he threatens to cancel the whole expedition and send all of the conscripts home, which would have been the merciful thing. But no such luck for the Pressies. They may have been a starving, mutinous rabble, but they were also Mansfeld's only meal ticket and political leverage at this point, and he wasn't about to let James torpedo that. So the Count mumbles something about landing in France if they'll let him. He knows they won't at this point. And then he pulls the equivalent of tapping his watch while backing away slowly towards his running car. Oh, look at the time! And he sets off to sea with his army around January 31st before James can pull the plug on the expedition. They were duly refused entry into Calais by the French, or use of the French cavalry at this point, because their soldiers were in winter quarters. And so, Mansfeld and his army sailed on to the town of Flushing in the Netherlands, exactly where James didn't want them. And the king would immediately send commands to the English officers, bidding them to defy Mansfeld's orders should he attempt to use any of the soldiers to fight the Spanish. It's a total fiasco, and some sources have Buckingham weeping over it, because it was like the king was kicking the ball into the stands without even trying to go for goal. And this was all going to come down on Buckingham's head, and he wasn't wrong. But really, it was all a moot point, anyway. By the time the ships had come into port, there were mere days of food left. The snow began to fall, and the Dutch weren't remotely prepared at this moment to shelter and feed thousands of people. While James, Mansfeld, Louis, and the Dutch Estates General squabbled over who was responsible to take care of the army, the food ran out. The starvation, disease, and deaths from exposure set in. And the English were recording 40 to 50 deaths a day. A band-aid was slapped over it all. A loan of 20,000 pounds was wrung from the Dutch, and they were able to give the men a few provisions, as well as some straw to put over themselves while they slept in freezing ships and a few hastily constructed barracks. At this point, however, only a quarter of the army were even capable of bearing arms, and the pitiful remains of Mansfeld's expedition would languish there in the United Provinces, a bleeding ulcer, both financially and politically, for the new regime in England. I say new regime because, in late March, as the true extent of this whole debacle that was Mansfeld's expedition became clear to many of those back in England, King James dies, and King Charles I ascends the throne. And at this point, we can weave all of this back into our story so far. Only a month before King James's death, Sir George Calvert had been raised into the Irish peerage and was granted the title of the first Baron of Baltimore. One of the benefits of which was a certain immunity to prosecution for being Catholic. And being a Catholic was something he was out in the open about now. He had already retired his office of Secretary of State a few months earlier, but he maintained a toehold in court with his membership to James's Privy Council. And Calvert had just set about organizing a new expedition to his colony of Avalon. And by the tone of his own letters and some court gossip which has survived as part of the historical record, Sir George was planning on going himself to inspect the state of his Newfoundland investment, a venture he had dumped a lot of money into. Then James suddenly dies, throwing everything up in the air. 
Calvert's last official duty as privy councillor would be to join the other councillors in declaring Charles King of England. But when he is required to give oaths of allegiance and supremacy to the new king, Calvert politely declines and removes himself from the king's privy council. This is traditionally reported as being down to Calvert's Catholicism, and that may be partly true. King Charles is playing a double game of trying to appear tolerant to Catholics to the French and trying to appear to be tough on Catholics to the Parliament. And these earliest months of his reign were very worrisome to many English Catholics who thought things were supposed to get better with the French match. But the deeper issue for Calvert would probably have been Buckingham and the new direction in foreign policy. So George Calvert knew perfectly well Buckingham's war aims against the Spanish, and he knew his Spanish party credentials would paint a huge target on his back should he decide to stay on as a privy councillor. So Calvert got out of the way and informed the king of his intention to concentrate on colonial endeavors abroad for the greater glory of the kingdom. This way, Calvert is able to extricate himself from court without burning any bridges, and to keep himself useful to his sovereign lord. Thanks in part to the goodwill he was able to maintain from the king, Calvert is able to cobble together a new expedition to Avalon. This time, it would be headed by a Catholic knight and soldier of fortune named Sir Arthur Aston. Aston's job would be to act as a fresh pair of trusted eyes to reconnoiter the condition and viability of the colony, after years of what Calvert saw as mismanagement by the previous governor. At the same time, Calvert and his family are granted passage into Ireland to personally oversee his estates there, as well as to escape the plague that has been raging with increasing ferocity in London. And we heard all about these developments in episodes 4 and 5. In our next narrative episode, we'll stay in England during those years between 1625 and 1627 and kick off the notoriously tumultuous reign of King Charles I. Now on the face of things, this new shuffling of the political pack should have been a chance for the crown to clear the slate with the parliament. It's a new king, a new start. A new try at a productive relationship. It's certainly how Charles felt. Just a year before, he was a popular darling in Parliament. He had none of the hang-ups his father had about war with the Spanish. And now that military intervention had become a reality, thanks in large part to a Parliament which demanded it, Charles fully expected to be backed financially to prosecute the war. It would be an early example of just how tone-deaf Charles was in regards to attitudes within Parliament he'd get no such cooperation. Parliament would not forget and forgive so easily being prorogued for 10 months, having the subsidies they had granted spent in ways they didn't agree with, and Charles breaking his oath not to trade toleration of Catholics in England for a French princess. Most of all, Parliament were unhappy about Buckingham, the part of the Parliament that Buckingham didn't control himself anyways, because the Duke had survived the passing of the crown from James to Charles at the height of his powers. But his string of diplomatic and military fiascos were already beginning to pile up. And as we'll see, in the years between 1625 and 1627, there'll be more where that came from. Like a gambler on a losing streak, Buckingham will have to place increasingly heavier bets to try and win himself out of the hole he was in. And thanks in part to a parliament that was spoiling for a fight, as well as Charles' inability to cut his friend loose and throw him to the wolves when necessary, Buckingham's series of diplomatic, military, and public relations disasters will help drag England into a constitutional crisis. The waters will be further muddied by the successful consummation of the French match and the arrival to England of the young new queen, Henrietta Maria. Her value as a guarantor of peace and cooperation between England and France will quickly prove less than worthless, 
And in these early years of their marriage anyway, she will mostly serve as a royal pain in the backside for King Charles and stoke paranoia in Parliament about a Catholic takeover. Finally, we'll complete our chronological stitch job and catch back up with Sir George Calvert in early 1627 as he returns to England to be part of peace talks with Spain. And we'll see how his renewed access to the court and royal patronage, as well as Buckingham's new scheme to make war on the French, will affect Calvert's plans for a new expedition to Avalon. And finally, finally, we'll have Calvert setting sail himself in the summer of 1627 to see with his own eyes the Newfoundland colony he'd been dumping a sizable chunk of his fortune into the last five or six years. Also, as I've threatened a few times in today's podcast, we do have a supplemental episode on the constitutional struggles between King and Parliament coming. A huge subject, and a bottomless rabbit hole that I instantly get way over my head in. It's great. Sure to put the, uh, back in fun. I can't say which episode will be coming out first. I'm not sure of much in these crazy, crazy times. And I'm not about to promise you anything, since my unreliability and constant recidivism with deadlines is hitting junkie levels at this point. The only case I can plea is that life has been coming at me something fierce since last summer. Release of today's podcast was even postponed the last couple of weeks because, as a grocery store fishmonger, I'm considered essential. Which is a fancy way of saying I still have to go to work during a global pandemic. And it was like a Maryland snow scare for two weeks straight at the store, and I've just been worthless whenever I get home. But hey, here we are. We got through it. Or at least, I hope you got through it. I know today's episode was a bit of a narrative slog, and I really am sorry about the skipping record in the timeline. I think this is the third time we've killed King James. It's just an unfortunate side effect of, of me learning the history as I go. I'd never choose to write it in this sort of chronologically schizophrenic manner. But I can assure you, we're now heading in the right direction, if ever so slowly. Like digging ourselves an escape tunnel out of a prison with a spoon. Once we finally crawl through to the other side and take that first deep breath of freedom, we'll be able to look back upon our labors with a certain sense of pride and accomplishment. Anywho, I hope everyone's making it okay through their quarantines or what have you. Or if you're one of the essentials, I hope you make it okay through your shifts. When we next meet, hopefully this whole thing will have blown over. Pandemic schmandemic. Until then, this has been A History of Maryland. And I have been Jared Books. Telling you one more time, it ain't no crime. Rocket.